We welcome you to worship this morning, and our call to worship this morning comes from Zephaniah 3, verses 14 through 17. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with singing, with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Continue reading from the New Testament this morning from Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. And after these things, as so after he heals the paralytic and forgives his sin, he went forth, that is, Jesus went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. May God bless the reading of his holy and infallible word, both the law and the gospel this morning. In light of communion uh, next Lord's Day, I'd like to read the first part of the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper. You can find that on page 136 in the back of the Psalters. Page 136. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, attend to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. As they are delivered by the Holy Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 29. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort. It is above all things necessary, first, rightly to examine ourselves, and next week, secondly, to direct it to that end for which Christ hath ordained and instituted the same, namely, to his remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of these three parts. First, that everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them, to the end that he may abhor and humble himself before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that, rather than it should go unpunished, he hath punished the same in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Secondly, 
that every one examine his own heart, whether he doth believe this faithful promise of God that all his sins are forgiven him, only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him as his own, yea, so perfectly, as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Thirdly, that every one examine his own conscience, whether he purposes henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life and to walk uprightly before him, as also whether he has laid aside unfeignedly or with sincerity all enmity, hatred, and envy, and does firmly resolve henceforward to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. All those, then, who are thus disposed, God will certainly receive in mercy and count them worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not feel this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. Therefore, we also, according to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, admonish all those who are defiled with the following sins to keep themselves from the table of the Lord and declare to them that they have no part in the kingdom of Christ, such as all idolaters, all those who invoke deceased saints, angels, or other creatures, all those who worship images, all enchanters, diviners, charmers, and those who confide in such enchantments, all despisers of God and of his word and of the holy sacraments, all blasphemers, all those who are given to raise discord, sects, and mutiny in church or state, all perjured persons, all those who are disobedient to their parents and superiors, all murderers, contentious persons, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, whoremongers, drunkards, thieves, usurers, robbers, gamesters, covetous, and all who lead offensive lives. All these, while they continue in such sins, shall abstain from this meat, which Christ hath ordained only for the faithful, lest their judgment and condemnation be made the heavier. But this is not designed, dearly beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord, to deject the contrite hearts of the faithful, as if none might come to the supper of the Lord, but those who are without sin. For we do not come to this supper to testify thereby that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves. But on the contrary, considering that we seek our life out of ourselves in Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that we lie in the midst of death. Therefore, notwithstanding, we feel many infirmities and miseries in ourselves, as namely that we have not perfect faith, and that we do not give ourselves to serve God with that zeal as we are bound, but have daily to strive with the weakness of our faith and the evil lusts of our flesh. Yet, since we are, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, sorry for these weaknesses and earnestly desirous to fight against our unbelief and to live according to all the commandments of God, therefore, we rest assured that no sin or infirmity which still remains against our will in us can hinder us from being received of God in mercy and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly meat and drink. Our text this morning, beloved, is from Luke 5, verses 27 to 32. I'll not read those verses again. Well, as we come to a week of preparation for the Lord's Supper and self-examination, it can often be a week of conflicting thoughts, emotions, challenges that face us in a spiritual way, in our minds and hearts. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're wrestling with the prospect of going to communion for the very first time. 
You cannot deny that the Lord has worked in your life. You want to go to communion, and yet you can't find it in yourself to get there. It's too much of a struggle. But there are those who have gone, even for years, who still struggle within themselves. Trying to find something within them that would qualify them, first of all, to come to Christ in the first place, but then to come to the table. Such a huge challenge. There are doubts, fears, temptations, struggles, tender hearts. There are those, of course, who are not struggling at times, and yet, in a week such as this, will find themselves at the throne of grace to find help for the remaining sins that they still find within them against their will. But there are also those who go through a week of self-examination, a week of preparation, without any thought at all about Christ. A bit of a brashness about you, perhaps. You breeze through the week because you're good. Because you find it within yourself that you're a fairly good person. Oh, I trust this morning that there's a word for each of us. Also for those who have never been to communion, for those who have no saving hope in Christ this morning, I trust that there's a word for you as well. You see, the word of God is sharp. It's sharper than any two-edged sword dividing to the joints and to the marrow. And so we come to the question, with whom does Jesus eat? With whom does Jesus eat? It's my prayer that as we answer that question from the Word of God this morning, that we will find the right balance between examining ourselves, learning who we are, but learning how a glorious Savior is perfectly matched for a nature such as ours, a glorious Savior who is willing to stoop so very low to eat with sinners. So in the first place, we see that Jesus eats with those whom he calls. In verse 27, we read these words, And after these things he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. This comes immediately on the heels of Jesus healing the paralytic and this debate about who has the power to forgive sins. So Jesus, just to emphasize the point there, says, I have the power to forgive sins. He forgives the man and then he heals him of his physical infirmity. Reminding the crowds, reminding us that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. And then he goes forth from that place and he sees another sinner, a man named Levi, sitting at the receipt of custom. And as we begin this week of preparation, so often we begin with ourselves, and sadly we often end with ourselves. We need to get the order right here. Jesus begins with us as he begins with, with Levi. 
Jesus went forth after healing the paralytic. But in his sights now is this publican. Notice what the text says. He saw. He lays eyes on him. A publican. A man unworthy of even the sight of Jesus. Jesus lays eyes on him. Already speaks to us of the grace of Jesus Christ. It's not simply a glance that Jesus casts in the direction of Levi. There's a sense of observation about what Jesus is seeing. There's an object in his line of sight that he sees and that he holds in his sight that he's going to be fixed on as he sees Levi. Speaks of intentionality on the part of Jesus. He is focused on sinners even when sinners are not focused on him. The reality is that Levi was not looking for Jesus. He's in the middle of collecting tolls, collecting taxes, doing what he did to line his pockets. He was living his dream, not living for Jesus. Focused on gaining worldly wealth, but Jesus sees him. Levi's looking down at his table. He's counting his money. He sees his money, but Jesus sees him. And that makes the world of difference. Because Jesus sees him, he's going to turn his life entirely upside down. Jesus saw him. Speaks of intentionality. Speaks of Something that is going to happen. We could say the air is pregnant with change. Change that comes from above. Change that comes from Christ entering into the life of Levi. Sometimes we live with this this odd idea that if we were there, that somehow we would be closer to to grace than, than Levi. As close as Levi. But we don't have to be living in the times of Jesus in order for Jesus to see us. There's something that we need to live with in the week to come. It's this pervading sense that Jesus sees us. Jesus sees us. If we're fixated on ourselves, we're not living with that awareness that Jesus sees us. He sees you where you are. He even sees those this morning who are not searching for him, who are not looking for him, those who are so focused on living their dream that they have no idea that Jesus sees them. But through the preaching of the gospel this morning, this is the message that Jesus sees you where you are. He sees those who are struggling with themselves, with their own unworthiness of associating with Jesus and eating with him at the table. He sees those who are consumed with themselves, their own pride, their own self-righteousness. He sees this morning. We began our service, the words from Zephaniah 3, that the Lord is amongst us. From there, it's safe to deduce that Jesus sees us if he's amongst us. Do you ever think about that? In the midst of your sin, of living your dream for those who are unbelievers, for those who are believers and yet struggle intensely, with self-examination, with an unhealthy focus on yourself, For those who are self-righteous. Do you ever think about this? That Jesus sees you as clearly as he saw Levi. The reality is that we can't escape his gaze this morning. But who does he see exactly? 
Well, we see here, read here, that he sees a man named Levi, a publican, a tax collector, a man who's on the same level as other notorious sinners like prostitutes. And where does Jesus see him? He's sitting at the toll booth. Jesus catches him in the act. So often we have this idea that we have to clean ourselves up first before coming to Jesus to ask for forgiveness for the first time or for the thousandth time. But Jesus finds Levi exactly where he is. Caught in the act of his sin, of his desire for wealth. And in that very moment, Jesus knows all about this man. He sees a sinner who needs saving. He sees someone redeemable. Levi's desire for money and prestige among his peers poses no problem for Jesus. Jesus sees him. But he doesn't just look at him. He calls out to Levi with a, with a charge, with a command to follow him. He says, follow me. As he catches Levi in the act of sin, in the desires of his heart, not even looking for Jesus, Jesus sees him and says, follow me. Where does Jesus find you this morning? Where does Jesus find you throughout the week? The point is that he finds you exactly where you are. The places of sin that you love, he sees you with your wandering mind and how you're going to fulfill that next pleasure that you've been living for. Behind the computer as you seek to fulfill that next lust, he sees you in front of the mirror with all the discontentment and the pursuit of of beauty for beauty's sake. He sees you in the middle of your marriage as you live for yourself and you disparage your spouse and you're, you're speaking ill of them, angry with them. He sees you in the shopping mall as you spend money for happiness. He sees you in the middle of those disparaging thoughts that you have of God. The cross providences that you've experienced. He sees you as you wrestle for peace with God. Trying to give something of yourself. The amazing thing is that Jesus does not pass by. Levi does not just see a tax collector. He does not just see a publican. But he stops and he calls. He does the same this morning. He pauses here amongst us, in the midst of us. And he says, follow me. Catches us in the act. He says, leave whatever it is that has distracted you from the true purpose of life to live for Christ. Leave whatever it is that has blinded you to the reality of who Christ is and remember that he sees you. And in his abundant compassion, he calls you from your sin to follow him. To forsake all, to go after him. He calls for the first time this morning to those who are, have never come to him in the first place. He renews that call for those who have lost their focus, who need their focus renewed this morning in a week of examination and preparation to follow Christ, to stay focused on him, to keep following Christ. You see, that's the significance of this call. 
It's not just one moment in time that Levi is to follow Jesus. He's not just to to leave the customs booth and and just turn and and listen to Jesus for, for one minute. What Jesus is calling Levi to do, what Jesus is calling us to do, is to keep on following him. It's a lifetime of following, a continuous following. A continuous reorientation to Christ, the Savior. The one who calls sick sinners to follow him. But he doesn't call us just to to leave us. He changes sick sinners as well. Levi... It's a man bent on lining his own pockets, living the high life. Jesus calls him, but he also changes him. For some of us, the question comes, how do I follow Jesus? How can I follow him in a week of preparation and self-examination? How can I uh, follow him when I've lived such a life of rebellion, of, of turning against Jesus? Is it really possible for me to, to follow Jesus? My sin is so great. My, my fear is so large. My doubts seem unconquerable. It seems so confusing at times. But listen to the voice of Jesus this morning as he calls you to follow him. And don't limit his power to change your will, to change your affections because of your sin, because of your doubt, because of your fear, because of your inability or your unwillingness. Let's read what happens to Levi in verse 28. He left all, rose up, and followed him. He follows Jesus. He left all. He leaves everything behind, the toll booth, the prospect of of wealth, of quick money, the life that he had imagined, the power that, that money could buy, the possessions he would have enjoyed otherwise, the corruption, the inner desires for all of this, he he left it all. Are you ready for that? See, following Jesus comes with a cost. Are you ready to leave yourself behind? To leave your sin behind? To leave your desires behind? Comes at a great cost. But this morning, we're called to weigh that cost over against the reward that we get when we follow Jesus. We get him. We exchange our life of sin. We exchange our doubts and our fears for Christ. So much more worth it, isn't it? Jesus doesn't ask for half-hearted attempts to leave it all. It's decisive here. He left all. Not just the physical separation from the toll booth, from the money table, but a spiritual separation. A separation of desires with now what's his former life. seems decisive. Yet the tense of the verb indicates that he keeps on leaving. He keeps on leaving. And that's the reality of a life in Christ, isn't it? In one sense, we do turn our backs on the life of sin that we once enjoyed. But there will still be temptations. There will still be challenges. There will still be doubts. There will still be fears. But we have to leave it all behind. 
for Christ. He rose up. He stands up. Sitting indicates a sense of permanence, doesn't it? He was sitting at the toll booth. But now he's standing. A change has taken place. A change of location as he follows the master now. The change of location speaks to a change of heart. And he follows Jesus. Imagine what that must have been like for a moment. This was his livelihood. None of us have to leave our livelihoods to follow Christ. For Levi, that was the reality. He leaves it all behind. He stands up. He does a 180. He turns around from his life of corruption and wealth and follows Christ in a new life. Maybe this is the part that you find confusing. You know you're unable to follow Jesus on your own, and yet here it seems that Levi is the main actor. He he leaves. He rises up. He follows Jesus. It seems that he's doing all the actions. How How do we reconcile this? Jesus' command to follow him, and then Levi leaves everything. He stands up, and he follows Jesus. Well, these actions on Levi's part do not speak to his ability to get up and to to follow Jesus. It's not about his ability, but it speaks beautifully and convincingly of Jesus' power to change sinners like you and like me. To change you, to change me from following our own agenda to following Jesus. You see, when Jesus gives the command to follow him, He doesn't just leave us to ourselves. The grace of Christ comes with that very command to Levi and to us in the call of the gospel. It speaks of the grace that changes Levi's heart, Levi's affections, Levi's will, so that it does say that he leaves and rises up and follows because he's a changed man. But it all proceeds from Christ. And so when Jesus commands to follow him, to repent of our sin, he gives the grace to do that very thing. So we come, that we leave, and we follow. It speaks of hope, doesn't it? of the power of change that Jesus brings through his word. Through his spirit that gives life to those who are dead. To renew that life in his people as we see the sin that still remains in us. There's encouragement here. In the power of Jesus to change our hearts for the first time, or or by renewal, to bring us again to, to Jesus, to the righteousness of Christ, to the power of Christ, to the love of Christ. It's not just a one-time grace that Jesus gives for us to repent. No, it's ongoing grace. Levi continues to leave. He continues to rise up. He continues to follow. It's an ongoing action dependent on the ever-flowing fountain of grace that is in Jesus Christ. That's the reality of that change that Jesus works, the grace that he gives. When Jesus calls, he also changes But he also communes with six sinners, as we see in our third thought. 
The change of Levi is not only evidenced in his leaving and following Jesus. He wants to do more, you see. There's this, this love for Christ. There's, there's this desire to honor Christ. He wants others to, to know about Jesus. And that's what we see in verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat, sat down with him. The focus of this feast is on Jesus. The focus of Levi's life is Jesus. How do we know this? Well, first, Luke notes that it was a great feast. It was not just a small, intimate lunch with Jesus. Levi doesn't invite Jesus to lunch one-on-one so he can get to know Jesus better. He's already met Jesus and come face to face with him. He knows who Jesus is. But it's a great feast. A lavish spread for those guests who would come. He invites his fellow publicans and others to come. He spares nothing. That's the impression we get here. The word feast also has this idea of of receiving, of reception. The feast was not to impress others, but to receive Christ into his home. An open home for Christ signals an open heart for Christ. Secondly, Luke notes that it was in honor honor of Christ. The focus is no longer on Levi and his ability to throw a party and his lavish provision. In a sense, Levi is transferring the duties of the host to Jesus because it's not about Levi anymore. It's about Christ. He made him He made a feast for him. He received Christ in the most intimate aspects of his life, and that's to honor Christ. There's a lesson in there for us this morning, isn't there? For preparation. To receive Jesus is to honor him as the Savior of sinners. That's what's at work here in this feast. Maybe we struggle with the fact that Jesus receives sinners like us. And you say, well, I can't just receive Jesus. Because what if I'm presuming Friends, here we see that to receive Jesus is to honor him. To set him at the center of your lives. It brings the greatest honor to Christ when you receive him by faith. Whether that faith is weak or strong, it honors Christ for what he's come to do to be the savior of sinners like you and like me? Have you received him? Will you receive him again? Because to receive him is to honor him. Just remember that. To stay away from Christ is to dishonor him. To say something about Christ that there's not quite enough about him that can save you. He hasn't quite met your levels of expectation and what he should do for you. It's a sad way to live. It's a dangerous way to live. It's a deadly way to live. But when you receive Christ, you exalt him as the Savior for your soul to wash away your sin to deal with your sin as decisively as he did with with Levi's sin.
Thirdly, Levi invites other sinners to this feast who need the grace of Christ. Notice that Luke uses great twice, first to describe the feast and then to describe those who were there, a great company of publicans and others that sat down with them. A great company of sinners with whom Jesus communes, all sorts of sinners at this feast. Again, it reminds us of the capacity that is in Christ to save. Sometimes we live with this theology that Jesus only saves a few because of the scriptures that say many are called but few are chosen. But here there's a great company. All sorts of sinners. Their presence there does not speak to their state before God. It doesn't mean that Jesus saved all of them one for one. We can't make any claim in that direction, but it does speak to us about who Jesus eats with, doesn't it? He eats with a great company of sinners. And what's the significance of eating with someone in this culture? It means that you associate with them. You would speak to them. You would fellowship with them at the table in shared hospitality. This was the place where Jesus would meet with sinners again and again. In the Gospel of Luke, at least three times he is criticized by the Pharisees for eating with publicans and sinners. Luke 5, Luke 7, Luke 15, the Pharisees grumbled that Jesus ate with publicans and sinners, and that prompted the series of three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Jesus used this to teach spiritual lessons, to teach us that his grace reaches to the worst of sinners. That he communes with sinners not to leave you and me where we are, not just to say that he, he gets us. But to say that he changes us. Demonstrates the heart of Christ for sinners. He points out his accessibility, his availability for sinners. His desire for the hearts of sinners like you and me. Because it's from amongst such sinners that Jesus takes his subjects. Levi's witness to the power of Christ's transforming grace. Christ reached to the lowest level possible. Not just to grovel with these people and their sins. Not just to grovel with you and me and our sins. But to raise us to newness of life. So we break with our sin. That we turn to Christ and live out of Him. He reaches to the lowest. Because there is none out of His reach. That's what He's, that's what he's emphasizing as he, as he calls Levi. As he changes Levi, as he sits down to eat with these publicans and sinners, reminding us that he doesn't eat with the perfect. He doesn't eat with the self-righteous. Because they don't need Jesus. The point is that he communes with sinners. Remember that in this week. He communes with sinners. Not just so that he gets you and me. To get down to our level so that we can have this Savior that's down on our level. There is that reality. But he eats with sinners. He associates with sinners. To change you. To change me. But that sets up the challenge, the challenge for the self-righteous sinner. In our last thought, Jesus underlines 
an important truth that I trust and pray we take home this week as he challenges the self-righteous sinner. The Pharisees express a concern in verse 30. They murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Upon reading this, you might resonate with that question. You might be tracking with it and say, Yeah, they, they have a legitimate complaint, don't they? Why would the disciples sully themselves by eating with these lowlifes? Why would they associate with those who are sick, broken, corrupt, sinful? Are they really worthy of table fellowship? In the other Gospels where this account is recorded, the question is not simply directed at the disciples. It's also directed and chiefly directed at Christ. He's in the crosshairs with this question. They put up the facade that they were concerned about ceremonial cleanliness. That a rabbi of Jesus' stature is associating with publicans and sinners. And what's embedded in this question that the Pharisees are asking? It's not a sincere concern for ceremonial cleanliness. It's a spirit of self-righteousness. They looked down their noses at the publicans and sinners. And they thought that they were better than the publicans. Maybe this is a concern you might have as you wrestle with communion in the week to come. You start thinking about other people. You think about them. And you start to question, what's what's their grounds for going to the Lord's table? They probably shouldn't be there. I mean, after all, I haven't heard how God has worked in their life. And if I remember how they lived before, I'm not sure that they should, they should be there. This question of the Pharisees resonates in your heart, and you think the Pharisees got it right. In the concern to guard the purity of religion, you want to guard the purity of the table. But may I submit to you this morning that such a concern is almost always misguided and misdirected. First of all, you have enough of your own sin to contend with. And second of all, this is not how the gospel works. The sad reality is that when you live in such a way and question the closeness of others to Christ, you yourself remain far away from Christ. Even though you might think you're better than someone else especially if you don't go to the table yourself. The spirit of self-righteousness afflicts not only those who judge others that come to the table, but it can also afflict those who struggle coming to Christ in the first place. You see, the spirit of self-righteousness works in two directions. In one sense, it works in those who are hardened, who are judging others. But also works in how we judge ourselves, doesn't it? For those whom the prospect of coming to Christ seems out of reach, coming to the table seems even further out of reach because it's such a a huge thing. But it's the spirit of self-righteousness that also is at work in tender hearts. The point is not to condemn, but to get you to see it this morning. 
so that your focus is rightly reoriented to Christ and away from yourself. That you judge yourself in light of what Christ says about you. Keeping the focus on Christ even as you examine your own hearts. And why do I say self-righteousness works in that direction? Because an intense focus on yourself and a week of self-preparation without looking to Christ elevates yourself and devalues Christ. Morbid introspection leads to death, leads to a heart of self-righteousness because at the root of it, you're looking for something in yourself that's going to qualify you for acceptance with God and you will never, ever find it. You're trying to make yourself look better than what God is actually telling you that you are. That you are a sinner at root. And that's all that you will ever bring to the table. That's all that you will ever bring to Christ. And that's all that you are supposed to bring to Christ is your sin. The sin of self-righteousness. Yes, even that sin. Because as you, come to, as, a, as you come to Christ as a sinner, you see, there's nothing that you bring in your hands anymore. You do not judge yourself as better than what God says about you. You come as a sinner in need of grace to receive it from the hand of Christ. And so a concern for others an undue, unhealthy, imbalanced concern for your own righteousness is always misguided. When you think of yourself as better than someone else, when you think of yourself as better than what God says about you, a spirit of self-righteousness that exists. And Jesus challenges that in his words to the Pharisees. Words that speak of hope. He challenges the self-righteous in verse 31, they that are whole need not a physician. I came not to call the righteous. In essence, Jesus is saying that Levi was the sick sinner that he's come to heal. They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He uses the case of Levi. He uses the case of eating with publicans and sinners to point out the self-righteousness of their own condition, of the Pharisees' condition. The self-righteous sinner thinks that they are whole and complete and mature and beyond the need of grace blind to the reality of their condition. He's not come to call them because they don't think they need him. It doesn't mean that it's hopeless for you. It means that the word is penetrating those who are self-righteous. The word is confronting you this morning to, to get out of yourself, to leave yourself behind, To judge as God judges. To see upon what grounds we come to Christ. And then on what grounds we come to the Lord's Supper. Can I point out to you again this morning. There is no good in you. There is no righteousness. Not a shred of righteousness that will ever get you to Christ. It brings us full circle again, doesn't it? He sees you and me. He points out that we are sinners in need of a physician. He exposes your sin of self-righteousness this morning. He calls for you to come. By virtue of hearing the word, he calls you again. 
as a sinner. You see, self-righteous people are as much sinners as others. The problem is you fail to perceive it. But Jesus is peeling back the layers of that spiritual blindness so that you see your self-righteousness and flee to him alone. He encourages the sick sinner this morning. The sick need a physician. He's come for you. He's come for you, sick sinner. We can declare that based on the word of God this morning. He's come for the sick. Reminds us of the great banquet, doesn't it? The parable of the great banquet. Who did Jesus call to that feast? The maimed, the halt, the lame, and the blind. Sick. Calls you to come to him and to his feast that focuses on him. He calls sinners to repentance this morning. A life of repentance. He calls, he changes, he communes with sick sinners. He calls such to follow him, to leave all, to repent of your sin in this week, to focus on him as the physician for your soul. In Luke 7, the Pharisees rightly call him the friend of sinners. So two questions as you head into a week of preparation and self-examination. What do you think about yourself? And as you ask that question, ask yourself this question ten times in response to that first question, what do I think of Christ? as you see yourself to be a sinner. May you receive Christ as a glorious, rich, healing Savior. Amen. Let's pray. We thank Thee for the gospel. We thank Thee for Christ who is the gospel. Give us now the grace that thou hast promised in the gospel to receive thee, knowing that thou dost receive sinners. Thou wilt feed and nourish us in the week to come with thyself. That doubts would flee, that fears would vanish, that sin would diminish. and be increasingly viewed with hatred and disgust that Christ, the blessed Savior of sinners, would loom large in our hearts, would captivate our love and our affection. So it would be a week of joy instead of a week of dread, a week of anticipation, instead of a week of, of consternation, where a focus would be where it should be to honor Christ as the one who saves wretches like us. Stifle the spirit of judgment within us so that we would rightly see ourselves and Christ. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.